Good morning. Today's reading is from 1 John 2, 12 through 17. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. This is the reading where you, must, you may be seated. All right, thanks, Sherry. So again, have your Bibles open to 1 John 2. I want to do a little review work to help connect the passages from last week and this week. Uh, we are in the fourth week of working our way through the New Testament book of 1 John. Uh, we've talked about how John brings up very candidly, the truth of sin in our lives, but then uh, even more fervently, he talks about the salvation that we have in Christ. And, and I said I'd read this, um, this every week that I'm up here preaching. I think it's important for us to be reminded every week of the thesis or the purpose of John's letter. Every single week, you find it at the end of the letter in chapter 5, verses 11 through 13, where John writes, and this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Very encouraging. Very encouraging. So last week, Trey took us through uh, chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. He did a great job with last week's messages, um, last week's message, but it's important for, for me, I'm a big context guy, we got to have context, so I want to re- remind us what we looked at um, last week so that the passage this week might even make more sense. Um, we need to remember that this idea that John brings, and Paul writes this way as well, how we walk, how we walk, whenever you see that in the New Testament, That is an ancient Greek colloquialism or way of saying how we live our lives. So whenever we say how we walk or are we walking in light or are we walking in darkness, it means are you living your life in a particular uh, way. Uh, One of the first things that I noticed about Trey's message was remembering Tyler James, Pastor Tyler James' message on uh, April 30th out of Romans chapter 8 and how much crossover there was between Trey's message last week and Tyler's message out of Romans chapter 8. It was remarkable. Paul and John write essentially the same thing. They just use different language to get there. And the question is, are we walking in? Are we abiding in Christ by his spirit? Are we walking in the light? Or are we walking, are we living according to our own desires and our fleshly instincts? In other words, are we walking in darkness? Both Paul and John ask the same question using different language, and then they both counsel us about this. But also, these messages overlap in that both Paul and John issue ways for us to know which one it is that we're walking in. They don't just leave us with the question. They tell us, here's how you know. And Tyler briefed us on that on April 30th, and Trey talked about it for us last week. 
And that leads us to today's message, which is John's continuation of you and I processing how we walk in this life. And he gives great encouragement for our faith, but then he also gives us a stern warning about what it is that we will love. We have to ask, it's another way of asking this how will you live question is what are you going to love? You're going to love God, you're going to love the world and the things in this world. So the first half of this um, passage is verses 12 through 14. Let me reread that. It's a little poem that John writes. He says, I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. So verses 12 through 14, like I said, is a poem that is actually rooted in Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. And it's rooted in the fact that Satan, if, if Satan is the ultimate antichrist, and he is, then Jesus is in one sense, he's the anti-curse. He's the savior, he's the redeemer, but he's also the opposite of the curses that Satan brought about when Adam and Eve fell. In Jesus, we can strive to live a pre-Genesis chapter 3 life. We can strive to live a precursed life in Jesus. That's the power of the Holy Spirit filling us. And we're never going to get there perfectly. Please understand that. If anybody ever says to you, I've completely given up sin. I haven't sinned for weeks, months, even. That's just not true. That's a sin right there. They just lied to you, Okay. It, it, just, it doesn't happen. We never get perfect. But we do have this ability to start approaching that. And then we are made perfect in the day of Christ Jesus. That's what scripture tells us. The challenge, of course, is that we still live in this fallen world and we have to navigate that fallen world. And that gets on us and we struggle with that. But we do have the ability provided by the Holy Spirit and God's word to see and at least imagine a Genesis 1 and 2 world. A world and a reality in which we can live in total 100% intimacy, vulnerability, and here you go, complete lack of shame before God, lack of shame before others, lack of shame before creation, and lack of shame before ourselves. Those are the four primary relationships that were broken by original sin. A relationship with God, relationship with others, a relationship with creation, and our relationship with ourselves. We're even divided in ourselves. But in Christ, through his word, through his salvation, through the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, we can at least, we can at least point to that pre-Genesis 3 life that is coming again in the new Jerusalem when Jesus comes again. And that's what Adam and Eve gave up when they sinned. And that, that, the problem with that sin that Adam and Eve committed was that that sin changed their nature, which is then passed down to all of us who have come after them. Uh, the big word, the big academic word, is that sin is imputed to us. There's no way to escape it. That sin gets imputed to us. And so we are born into this sinful nature. But remember, Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 3 also told us that God has put eternity in our hearts. So even, even the unsaved person, even the person who doesn't know Jesus, 
knows in their heart, they know in their soul, something's not right. This is broken. This world we live in is broken. There are problems all around. What's wrong with it? There has to be perfection. There has to be, what, a utopia. This is why people who don't even know Christ are still pointing us towards this idea that we can have this perfect existence, but it's never going to happen this side of heaven. But what Solomon tells us is that deep in our souls, we know that things aren't right. We know that we're broken. We know the world is broken. Well, it's through the resurrected Christ and his, his spirit dwelling in us that allows us to actually really begin to see something better and focus on how to get there. Something perfect, something righteous, and something holy. But it's only through Jesus going to the cross that we will have access to that beautiful eternity. We need to remember that. But also, don't miss this in verses 12 through 14. These verses are also about our absolute security and hope of redemption and salvation in Christ, given by the Father, and empowered by the Holy Spirit. These three verses are some of the most encouraging verses in in the whole Bible. And and what I want to do, I do this occasionally. So when I do this, it it becomes not Scripture. I want you to understand. I'm not thinking that it's necessarily Scripture. But I want to update the language for you so it's more personalized for all of you here. I want you to hear the full assurance and confidence that you have in your salvation in Christ by writing it this way. Here it is. I am writing to you, Arcadians, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, East Camelback parents, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, Arcadia artists and energizers, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, Phoenicians, who are both new to the faith and mature in the faith, because you know the Father. I write to you, Redemption Arcadia, deacons, elders, pastors, and staff, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, eligible and disinterested singles of Redemption Church, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now, all of you who are in Christ, I want you to look in these three verses. There are five guarantees that God gives you because you are in Christ. Here they are. Your sins are forgiven. You know the eternal creator God of the universe. You know him. We are better and stronger than Satan because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. John will make that very clear to us when we get to chapter 4, verse 4 in this letter. No matter what happens in this life, you have defeated Satan in and because of the resurrected Christ in you, and the Word of God lives in you. What a beautiful message of encouragement and confidence for us. So then the last thing about these verses is, well, what about this language of little children, fathers, and young men? What's that about? What does that mean? What is John doing with that? Three things he's doing there with that. Number one, there is... Truth in the fact that in just about any church, there are by age, by age, children, young adults, singles, marrieds, parents, and elders. And we see that all over this congregation here at Redemption Arcadia. Second of all, it's also true that there are varying maturities in the faith in any given congregation. So there are little children in the faith. This is metaphorically speaking. There are little children in the faith, those who are brand new to the gospel, brand new to Jesus in the Bible. There are young men or young adults in the faith, 
those who are now gaining a measure of maturity and traction in their understanding and walk with the gospel and with Jesus. And then there are mothers and fathers and elders in the faith, those women and men in the congregation who draw from a deep well and they have mature insight and discernment regarding their faith and its interaction with the world. And and these are the people who who love pouring into others and they disciple and counsel and lead and teach young adults and children in the faith. People like Stephen Ann Wheeler. And then lastly, third, what John is doing here is there is a sense in which every believer should be or should be striving to be a part of all three of these. You're you're, you're all three of these in one way or sense or form. C.H. Dodd says it this way, All Christians are, by grace and not nature, because they are in Christ, all Christians are children in innocence and dependence on God. All Christians are young adults in their strength, passion, and enthusiasm in the faith. I'm in my 60s, and and I still feel like I'm just 59. I got all kinds of energy to do this stuff now. Okay, And all, all Christians, Dodd writes, should strive, are or should strive to be mothers and fathers in the faith with regard to wisdom, experience, and humble leadership. So that's the first half of this message. Here's the second half, 15 through 17. John writes, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. Uh, Verses 15 through 17 is one of the greatest challenges to the hope that we have. It's John presenting us with the the everyday battle that we have with what are we going to love? We choose all day long what we're going to love. Are we going to love God or are we going to love the things in this world? It's a tale of two loves. We need to understand, though, Exactly what John is getting at when he writes, do not love the world or the things in the world. So two major things that John needs us to see here. First of all, if you've been around Redemption Arcadia for any length of time, you know this already because you've heard us say this a lot. God created the world. He created the universe. It's not as though the world is immoral. Matter is not evil. In fact, One of the primary reasons we talked about this four weeks ago that John is writing this letter is to push back against a false teaching that was entering the church at that time that said that all matter is evil. Uh, That chair is evil. My flesh, my body is evil. And John is pushing back against that. God has created this. It's not that um, matter is evil. In other words, living our lives and pursuing our purpose and hopes is not inherently evil. John is not telling us that we cannot pursue our endeavors and our relationships, that we can't pursue our careers and resources, that we can't pursue our creativity, or even the spoils and pleasures of our toil. Even even Ecclesiastes, again, in in Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, as he's writing about how you got to make sure you don't put your faith and hope in this, and you can't put your faith and hope in that, even in the midst of that rebuke of, 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 of false gods all through Ecclesiastes, there's a recurring theme of his, him saying, look, you're working hard. Maybe at times you should take the time to enjoy the spoils of your labor. It's okay to do that. Okay? 
What John writes is not an utter rejection of the world. That's not it at all. But he is saying that when those good things become to us God things, then they become bad things. So uh, um, uh, Alistair Begg, Tom Schrader, they would say it this way. When, when the things of the world become the main thing, that's when they become the bad thing. Okay? And that's not about the things of the world. That's about our attitude towards it. The most, the most misquoted Bible verse in all of history. Money is the root of all evil. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible says the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil. The problem isn't money. The problem is us and our attitudes towards it. When we make money a God, then it becomes evil. That's why. But we're the ones that are driving that. Okay? So he's saying that when we exalt these things of the world and make them idols, make them false gods, then the love of God is not in us. It's very important. The problem is, is that our inherent sin nature will always drive us towards that, and so we have to be careful and we have to be aware of that. Our sin nature always wants to make more, more out of the things of this world than they deserve to be. It's our inherent sinfulness that tricks us into trusting the world the way we're supposed to trust God. So John is speaking against idolatry, which, by the way, is a major theme in the Bible, if you haven't noticed, the sin of idolatry. Okay? In fact, when we get to the end of 1 John, the last verse, this is how he ends his letter. He doesn't say, hey, it's been good talking to you. Goodbye. I hope you're having a great day. I'll see you next. He doesn't say any of that. His last verse, 521, is little children, keep yourself from idols. Boom. End of letter. That's how important this is. But here's the second thing, and we really need to grasp this. Most experts in, in the ancient Greek explain that John's concern here is also with how human beings think too much of and rely too much on the world's systems to be able to solve all problems, answer all questions, and eliminate all suffering. If we just come up with the right system, we'll be able to answer all questions, solve all of our problems, eliminate all suffering, and we will have utopia. And we've been trying to do that for, what, a couple weeks now? We've been doing this for thousands and thousands of years, and everybody's sure they, oh, I got it figured out now. If we just do this, then, uh, then we'll have this utopia, and it never, never happens. Isn't it? And by the way, okay, here you go. Specifically, I'm talking about politics, government, philosophies, programs, systems, all that, all that stuff. And isn't it true that our reliance on worldly systems and processes have just not put a dent in any of those things, we still have problems. People still suffer. There are still unanswered questions, which Steve Wheeler is very excited about. I just want you to know. He loves asking questions. We get so wrapped up in our political ideology and our postmodern existential philosophies and our hobby horse ideas and causes for changing the world that we end up dismissing or discounting God altogether. And it just seems silly to do that. And hey, listen... We need government. We have to abide in politics, as ugly as that can be. Philosophy is also helpful in that it can do a wonderful job in teaching us to think, although my cynical side believes that thinking has become a lost art in our world today. And we desperately, we desperately need creatives and entrepreneurs and marketplace risk-takers in order to chase those endeavors because those things can and do improve our lives. 
But none of these things will save us from our ultimate godless destiny. Only God, through Jesus, can do that. John's warning is against idolizing the things of this world and placing our faith and trust in the world's systems to fix things that these systems cannot and never will fix. And again, Solomon in Ecclesiastes, he reminds us in Ecclesiastes in a couple places that there is nothing that humans are able to do, no system, no philosophy, no government, no program, no wisdom that can fix what only God can fix. It's a chasing after the wind. Again, John is not demonizing all that's in the world. Rather, he's cautioning us against our misplaced affections toward the world. But then he explains how we get trapped into these uh, ungodly, worldly exaltations. And there's three things he talks about. And by the way, here you go. He's quoting from Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. He's just ripping it right out of there. Okay? He says, first of all, you've got to be ready to be aware of your flesh. That's your internal desires, those those sinful desires for pleasure and things that push you towards ungodly pursuits, unholy pursuits. There's nothing wrong with pleasure, but unholy pleasure is a huge problem, and human beings seem to have an affinity for that. So that's that internal. Remember, uh, 11 weeks ago, we talked about this in Romans chapter 7, where Paul said, you know, my flesh and the spirit, my flesh and the law are at war against each other. Okay? And then he says our eyes. That's the second thing. So that's that's things external to us. So we get get, uh, enamored with and enchanted by and entranced and misled by the superficiality of everything that we see. We see something glitzy and beautiful and we begin to idolize that as well. And we forget about how superficial things really are. This will make some of you uncomfortable, but have you ever met somebody who, uh, at first when you met them on the outside, they just, they, man, they look like the perfect human being that you're looking for. And then you spend some time with them and you realize, oh, they're just like me. They're all messed up. <laughs> now, I'm, I, I spent a lot of time in, in human communication theory. And the research has been done on this, and I know this also will make a few of you uncomfortable. But the research has been done, and it's coming forth now. Digital communication has contributed exponentially to this problem of superficiality and us seeing things that aren't real but actually placing faith and trust in them. Digital communication and the Internet have made us increasingly superficial. Do you really believe that stuff you see on, on social media is real? There's that old saying that I love, old saying, five years old, that I, that I love. Real life is what happens in between social media posts. That's what everybody has problems. Everybody has issues. Sound bites and fluffy images deceive us, and we refuse to look behind the curtain. We're scared of what's actually behind the curtain. We're fine with superficiality because we don't want to be made uncomfortable looking behind the curtain. And in that regard, I would suggest to you that the movie Wizard of Oz was prophetic. <laughs> and then that last one is pride. The way it's described in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, is... Um, the, the fruit was desired to make one wise. That's an ancient Hebraic colloquialism that means, uh, that means pride. But more than that, it means it's going to make me better than you. That's what it means. That's what pride is. That's what it means to, um, to, be, to be wise, to make one wise. It's this idea that I can now stand here and say, I'm better than you. I'm more worthy than you. I deserve more than you. Me, 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 me. That's what it is. 
And so he's just quoting from Genesis chapter 3. You know, we have the Trinity of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I call this the triad of temptation, flesh, eyes, and pride. And one, two, or all three of those will get us every single time. So the question and choice is simple. Which one will you love, God or the world? And then verse 17 rounds out John's argument. See, if we... If we put our faith in this world, we are placing our faith in that which is temporary, that which is wasting away. He's saying, why are you putting your faith in something that's not going to be here? But God and his kingdom and our salvation made possible by his son, all eternal. Understand, darkness is passing away, and so are the desires of the world. Again, it's so interesting how much crossover there are between the different authors of the New Testament. James says it even more fervently in James chapter 4. He writes this, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now, the first question I always have for that that verse is, why did he call us adulterous? Why adulterous? I'm not sleeping around. Why did he call us adulterous? Here's why. He He says, listen, when you worship a false god, you've made something other than the true God who you're supposed to be connected to, your God, you're cheating on God. You're having an affair with a different God, a not real God. It's, it's, like, it's, like, it's like a false God is a false spouse. And so in that regard, we're committing adultery. It's all over the Old Testament. God accuses his people when they turn away from him. He, he says, you're adulterers. You're idolaters. Same thing. Same thing. Committing adultery against God, you and I can only truly give our hearts and minds to one or the other, God or the world. Even Jesus says that in the Gospels. And it's part of what, what I, it's part of this uh, uh, biblical language of the two becoming one that's used throughout the Bible and that God takes very seriously. When, when you hear the language and the two shall become one, what, a, what context immediately pops into your head? It's marriage, right? So we have the tendency to think that that's the only time that the Bible talks about two becoming one. But the two become one language is throughout the Bible. There's, there's six or seven different ways that God talks about the two becoming one. This is an important and serious theme in the Bible, not just about marriage. It's about everything. God talks about God and his people Israel becoming one. That's why he calls them adulterers when they seek after false gods, when they go after Baal. Jesus and the Father. Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and the Father, we are one, two become one. That's how close they are. Certainly it's in marriage, husband and wife become one, one flesh. But it's also Jew and Gentile. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2, The gospel of Jesus breaks down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. The Jews and Gentiles hated each other. They were unreconcilable. But he says the gospel of Jesus breaks all of that down, that wall of hostility. And in the gospel, those two become one. Then there's the new heavens and earth and the old corrupt world that needs redemption and restoration. That's coming in the New Jerusalem. A lot of people think that this old world is just going to be wiped out when the New Jerusalem comes. No, actually, they merge together, and the old earth is restored to what it was supposed to be and what it was in the beginning. The two become one. There's a marriage that happens. Read Revelation, which you will in the fall, because we're going to go through it. 
And then finally, the two become one is exemplified in Jesus and his bride, the church. We, the church, have become one with the groom, Jesus. Read Ephesians chapter 5. We have become one with Christ. So when we turn our love to the world, we betray that oneness with God, made possible by the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. And that's why I would just encourage all of you to come to Jesus in repentance and faith and place him on the throne of your life. Let's pray together. Our gracious and holy God, we again just thank you for who you are. We exalt who you are. We praise you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done for us, what you continue to do for us. We thank you for your son. We thank you for your Holy Spirit who fills us now, who is here with us always. Your spirit is always with us. We just need to welcome your spirit. And we thank you for your word and its truth. And I pray that we would be people who abide in that, abide in all of that. God, thank you for uh, not only confronting us in, in the ways that we think that are not helpful, but also encouraging us and affirming us in our salvation that we have in you. God, we thank you for that. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.